As he walks back towards George Street, O'Connor thinks of Catherine, his wife who died, her shape and her smell and the sound of her voice whispering in his ear as they danced one Christmas Eve in the Finnegan's parlour with Patrick Mooney playing the fiddle and the others laughing and clapping along. It's painful to remember her still so alive, the press of her hand on his shoulder and the pale part of her coal black hair. But the thought that one day that pain might fade or disappear completely is worse. Forgetting is the final betrayal, he thinks. The pain is what is left of the love, and when that pain is gone, there is nothing. After she died, he started drinking whiskey every day. It felt like a means of survival, a way of fending off the future. He would drink in the mornings before he left for work, and in the afternoons, if he was alone, he would find a quiet pub and drink some more. He should have been dismissed half a dozen times. It was only Pat Hurley, the inspector who shielded him, made excuses, but in the end even Hurley lost patience. He called him in one day and told him that it was Manchester or nothing. He said he would write the reference for Maybury without making any mention of the drinking, but that was the very last lie he would tell. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I am Max Lewis and today we're joined by Ian Maguire talking about his new historical fiction novel, The Abstainer. In Manchester, 1867, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, also known as the Fenians, are out for blood after three of their men are hung for the murder of a police officer. Head Constable James O'Connor arrives from Dublin for a sober start, hoping to discover and thwart the Fenians' plans. Meanwhile, Irish-American Civil War veteran Stephen Doyle arrives and joins the Fenians, seeking a personal vengeance. Two men haunted by their pasts and driven for the need for justice are drawn together in a novel that is bloody, gritty, and absolutely captivating. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. So your novel begins with the historical event that inspired it, that being the hanging of three members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood in 1876 for the murder of a Manchester police sergeant. How did you come across that event, and what about it inspired you to write The Abstainer? Um, well, it's, a, it's an event in Manchester history, and I'm, I've lived in Manchester for about 25 years. So I, I, did, I kind of stumbled across it when I was actually doing research for my last novel. Um, and I was, I was a bit shocked and slightly embarrassed that I hadn't known about this before because it was such a big incident in the, in the 1860s. Mm. It's been more or less forgotten about, really, um, apart, outside the Irish community of Manchester anyway. So that... That, that was the first thing that sort of grabbed my attention, that this is a piece of history which, which seemed very dramatic and important, which had, had sort of dropped out of popular awareness. And the other thing which, which really drew me to it was it seemed to me an incident which connected to, to things which were still very much alive today. So it's a story about nationalism, people's willingness to die for, for nations, uh, and nationalism seems to be an issue which is really recurring, especially in Europe at the moment and it's a and it's an it's a story about terrorism as well and of course terrorism never 
unfortunately seems to go away. So it was those two things. It was, it was the fact that it was this forgotten moment of Irish-English Manchester history. And also it was one that, that connected so strongly to, to things which are still continuing and are with us now. Hmm. And as, as you mentioned, to both Irish and English people, this era of history and the continued bloodshed that happened with periods like the Troubles, it's quite a sensitive topic that many still carry scars over. As an Englishman yourself, how did you go about crafting the story of the abstainer while maintaining respect for both sides, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting issue. I, I swear, it's something which I both thought about and didn't think about, I suppose. And, and I, in a sense, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't write this novel worrying too much about what people might think about it, really. I mean, I think that's always the case. You know, you might have a kind of reader in mind, but you don't want to worry too much about particular reactions which you can't sort of control and worry about. So I suppose that was my, that was my first instinct, was just to sort of tell the story in an interesting and a kind of truthful way and then just let people respond to it how they will. I mean, suppose, I suppose deeper down than that, of course, the story is about two men or at least O'Connor, the central protagonist of the story, is a man who's sort of caught between two worlds, caught between the British and the Irish. So in some sense, his perspective allowed me to sort of negotiate between both sides without necessarily throwing my weight behind either one, which I think was quite Mm. useful um, for me as a writer. I didn't want to sort of feel like I was committed to to supporting either either side in, in the conflict. Readers who loved your last book, The North Border, for its attention to immersive historic detail, they'll be pleased to hear that The Abstainer continues that tradition, depicting a very dark vision of Manchester in 1867, as well as Pennsylvania a bit later on. What research did you do to capture that gritty, immersive detail of those places? Uh, well, I live in Manchester, so it was quite, it was in some sense, it was relatively straightforward. Yeah. But it was interesting. I mean, I, I did a lot of walking around in the early stages before I even started writing, just to sort of familiarise myself with, with the areas where where the people in the, in the novel lived and where they moved around. And although there is a fair amount of Victorian Manchester still still existing, I was sort of surprised and how little was left, actually. That was one of the interesting things about, I suppose, you know, 75, 80% of the city that was there in 1867 is now gone. Um, and, and what's particularly gone, which is sort of particularly painful for the novelist, is are the kind of ordinary places, the kind of ordinary houses where working class people would live, which is where most of the novel takes place. Being in Manchester was helpful, but it wasn't that helpful because a lot of, most of what, what I really was interested in, in had disappeared. So I, I went back to, in one sense, I went back to maps. So there are some, there's some fantastic, incredibly detailed maps of Manchester in the 1840s or 1850s. Um, so I, I use that a lot just to get a sense of the geography. I mean, th- these maps are so detailed. They give names of pubs and they just, they tell you what each building is and where lampposts were and strange things like that. Um, so I, I relied on that, and then also there are there are a few really quite evocative photographs that were taken in Manchester in around the 1850s from by a man named Mudd M U D D, who was kind of one of the early pioneers of sort of photography, and he took these very strange sort of atmospheric pictures of Manchester um, without any people in them. Those were things I really went back on in terms of just imagining 
imagining what the city might have been like um, and trying to sort of conjure it up in my mind, really. Hmm. Talking about your last book, The North Water, there's a few parallels between that and The Abstainer that I thought were a bit interesting. Both of them focus on two men, one who is trying to start anew after hitting rock bottom, so to speak, and the other who is on sort of a murderous personal quest, for lack of a better term. What draws you to to this theme and those kinds of characters when you're writing your historical fiction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that sort of structure of two men, two antagonists, is, a, is I suppose, a, quite a sort of classic dramatic structure to have two men sort of facing off and the struggle the narrative becomes the struggle between them so i i think it's the dramatic sort of force of that which which lures me in and i think yeah they are i mean structurally the novels are similar in that way but i think in some sense that the characters are, are different as well although connor and doyle sort of spend the novel struggling with each other in a certain similar way to the two two main characters in north water I think you know their their motivations and and what pushes them is sl- is slightly different, but yeah, that I mean that central conflict. I mean, novels are all about uh, conflict. Is what I tell my students when when I try to teach them how to write. So, having two men facing off is a, is a kind of very simple way of generating a kind of powerful narrative drive, which will push the story forward. And that conflict in the Northwater, especially, drew from literary classics like Heart of Darkness and Moby Dick. Were there any novels of that ilk that you drew upon thematically for The Abstainer? Yeah, the, yeah, lots in, in some ways. I suppose the most obvious one, which I read, again, kind of early on uh, in the process of thinking about this novel, was um, Joseph Conrad's novel, The Secret Agent. It's about a group of anarchists in London at the turn of the century who are plotting to blow up the Greenwich Observatory. As The secret agent of the title is kind of an informer who's, who's within their group. So it was just, it was a novel I went to because I thought, well, I'm writing about kind of Victorian terrorism. What's a, what's a kind of good model? And, and that was the one that sprung to mind. And it was, yeah, it's a really useful way to begin. I think I was, the thing which really stuck, stuck with me from that novel is the way he imagines the group and the kind of dynamics between between these different sort of strange eccentric radicals and revolutionaries um, so I, I that was really useful in terms of trying to think about the psychology of of a group like the fenians who are a secret society who's are bound together by this sacred oath yet a kind of inevitably a sort of slightly ragtag group of different people so so uh, conrad was really helpful in in a, in a way of thinking about that and in terms of more contemporary authors, your your writing style is quite reminiscent of Cormac McCarthy, although you do tend to use quote marks as opposed to... <laughs> the Abstainer still captures that sense of very gritty detail, a sort of nihilistic look at humanity, and the detached sort of minimalist writing. Why do you like to write your historical fiction in that sort of way? I mean, you're absolutely right that, particularly in North Water, I mean, Cormac McCarthy was a huge influence on that novel and I, I actually before I wrote The North Water I sort of went back and reread a lot of McCarthy's work you know I was looking at the style and thinking about the style of McCarthy and, and he's he's best known for his, for his high sort of rhetoric really and for this kind of extraordinary sort of biblical sentences mm. um, but it struck me that McCarthy has kind of combines a very plain sort of pared down style of prose with that very rich, ornate, kind of often, as I said, sort of biblical rhetoric 
And so that that struck me as just a, a really interesting combination, a way of sort of striking two notes and al- allowing yourself to sort of move from one to the other. So that's something I think I've I've tried to sort of use and borrow. So I, I think in in both the novels and maybe even more in the abstainer than in the North Water, there's a there's a kind of movement I think in the style from a kind of plainness um, and a kind of simplicity to occasionally a kind of uh, slightly richer more ornate more metaphorical kind of style and it's just it's just the movement the kind of variety uh, that that gives you which i think which i find kind of appealing um i mean the plainness allows you to just move the plot forward at, at speed when you need to but then uh, if you want to pause and if you want to sort of dig a little deeper and allow the reader to kind of slow down then you can do that as well in the same way, the abstainer doesn't shy away from that gritty historical detail. It also doesn't shy away from the violence of that era. And what interested me about the abstainer particularly is that you rarely describe the violence as it happened, but we often see the aftermath of when the violence happens off screen, so to speak. What do you try to achieve with your depictions of violence in your writing? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that the most of the violence in the abstain happens off screen as it were that's only, that became plain to me actually kind of almost when i finished it i sort of looked back and thought oh i haven't there's very few there's lots of violence in it but but very few descriptions of violence i mean i, I suppose i think of violence a little bit like sort of sex in some senses there's no reason to go into great detail unless unless that incident is really important in the story um and i suppose in the north water it seemed to me there were more more moments where describing the violence was important in terms of showing something about the characters and so on. I mean, the abstainer, I think it was partly that, partly it didn't seem, it didn't seem necessary to, to show the actual acts and the kind of the force, the force of that violence was, was perhaps more subtly rendered by showing its after effects than showing what actually happened. So that was one reason why I didn't feel the need to sort of dwell on it in this novel. The other reason, um, without giving too much away, I mean, the acts of violence, a number of the acts of violence which are not described would involve a kind of torture, I think. And that's something I just didn't really want to write about. I suppose I, I just felt I wouldn't really want to sort of spend a lot of time thinking about that form of violence i kind of it's a kind of line which i felt i wouldn't didn't want to cross mm. so there's kind of slight squeamishness on my part I, I might you could say about about certain kinds of cruelty um which the novel implies but but doesn't actually describe do you tend to be squeamish when you read violence on the page or is it is there a sort of a detachment when you're when you're writing it yourself there's, there is a detachment, I think, yes, and and I'm not I'm not a, normally a squeamish person, you know. I can I can whip through the sort of Cormac McCarthy horrors without blinking. I think it's it is it's just something about the idea of torture for me, which is which is particularly horrifying. I mean, there's a novel by J.M. Cutsey, Waiting for the Barbarians, which I think is a brilliant novel, which in part is about torture, and he again he he doesn't actually show show that he shows the after effects of it and he thinks about it but yeah for me that 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 kind of deliberate sort of cruelty is something it would be hard for me to sort of sit down and and want to describe in blow by blow detail
Mm, especially since, given the nature of a historical fiction novel, you're talking about a, a time where that kind of torture almost certainly did happen. So I can understand why it might be a little bit kind of glorifying it almost if you if you sort of dwelled upon it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think that the way that groups like that deal with traitors and deal with informers uh, is or always involves a kind of cruelty because mm. there's a there's a desire not only to eliminate them but to to sort of make an example of them in certain ways. Yeah, I mean, I did read, I read a certain amount about more recent kind of IRA activity and things in which in which that kind of thing happened. And it is, it is really, really pretty gruesome. Dialing in on the characters a little more, we talked a little bit about James O'Connor and you mentioned how he's sort of a, a middle ground between the Fenians and, and Manchester. Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the aspects of his character, such as his abstaining from alcohol. Mm. Um, what was sort of the, the thinking behind some other aspects of his character? Uh, I guess there are a couple of really important things about O'Connor, um, which have happened to him before the novel opens. I mean, one thing is is the death of his wife, which is the direct cause of his of his drinking. But but before that, we learn quite a lot about his childhood and the, the sort of traumas of his childhood, in particular his relationship with his father. So I think those those factors are always they're always behind everything that O'Connor does. Um, I think from O'Connor's perspective, the novel is very much about about loss and how to cope with loss. Um, and the drinking is, is is a kind of immediate attempt to escape from the experience of grief and, and to escape from the process of grieving in some way and the difficulty of that process. And as the novel goes forward, I think he, he tries to find other ways uh, of coping with the loss and of recovering from his past, both his immediate past with his wife and, and his deeper past with his father. And everything he does in some sense could be seen as a, as a struggle to redeem himself, to recover from that, to escape from the, the various kind of burdens of the past. And the novel in some sense asks, one of the big questions I think the novel asks is, is to what extent is it possible for us to escape from our past and to put, put what's happened behind us um, and and O'Connor sort of plays out that question, really. And that leads me to my next question, which was exploring Stephen Doyle a little bit more, because yes. he comes with his own baggage that he's trying to, to escape from. Uh, what was the thinking behind his character? Yeah, so Doyle is um, a Civil War veteran who is sent, sent to Manchester to revenge the, the hangings of his sort of Fenian comrades, um, I mean, he's based on, I mean, he's based on actual characters in the sense that the Civil War, the Irish Civil War veterans were an important part of the Fenian um, sort of military terrorist activities in the 1860s. But yeah, he has his own backstory. He has his own experience of sort of loss and trauma. I, I suppose the difference between uh, O'Connor, one of the differences between O'Connor and Doyle is that Doyle's means of of recovering from his particular past and of finding a meaning in his life is through warfare and through his attachment to to a larger cause, in this case, the Fenians. He, he gains a kind of meaning through fighting, through violence and through through his attachment to to the Irish cause, whereas, whereas O'Connor doesn't have that kind of larger attachment. Um, his attempts to to recover from the past and to do with more personal relationships 
more more individual kind of affectionate relationships you could say whereas whereas Doyle attaches himself to these larger forces and becomes a kind of a smaller element in these larger movements and that's the way in which he he copes and recovers from what's happened to him in the past. For my last question I wanted to ask about your writing of historical fiction in general so The Abstainer is your second historical fiction novel but it's not the only genre you've dabbled in. Your debut, Incredible Bodies, was a satirical novel set in the present day in a college. Yes. And you've also written a non-fiction book about Richard Ford. Yes. Given the, the success of The Northwater and probably the success of The Abstainer, I'm curious if historical fiction will sort of be your mainstay or if you'll touch on other fiction genres during your career. Yeah, it's a question I've been slightly turning over in my own mind, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm working on another novel, which is, which is historical, but then that will be sort of three historical novels. So I, I do feel like after that, I might want to do something a little bit different. Yeah, I don't want to plough exactly the same furrow uh, indefinitely. So, so yeah, I, I think I will branch out, whether that means a novel set in the present or, or certainly at least in a different a different historical period, not in the 19th century. That appeals to me. I think it's important as a writer to sort of stretch yourself hmm. um, and not to get into a kind of rut. But at the same time, it's, it's always, you know, where do these stories come from? Um, and they don't come that frequently in some ways. So a really good idea for a novel doesn't, doesn't pop up every day. So I think in some sense, I'm at the mercy of, of where they, whether I can find a really good idea, which is set in the present or, or set in a different historical period. And I, and I have to just wait and see and, and cross my fingers and hope that something, something comes up which allows me to branch off in a slightly different direction. Well, you mentioned um, a, a third novel that you're working on. Are you able to share some details on what it might be about or I guess what, what period it might be focusing on? It's, in an, it's a slightly earlier period. Uh, it's late 18th century and it's set amidst the kind of fur trade of northern Canada. That's all, that's all I can say at oh, the moment. Okay. That sounds very interesting. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome, Max. Good to talk to you. Mm-hmm.